Hello everyone, I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another edition of Rural Route to Thursday. We the people edition with Ginny Swagger. It's what we do when we get together every day, Monday through Friday. We discuss the issues between rural and urban America. Jenny Swagger checking in. We can't see her, obviously. It's on the radio. But I have a suspicion that she's proudly wearing her Tremont FFA sweatshirt on this National FFA Week. I am, yes. And I'm drinking out of my Olympia FFA uh, mug because that is my home FFA chapter. I did not know you were from the state of Washington. Um, no, Olympia <laughs> in, in, well, it's not in a town. It's, uh, middle of nowhere, Stanford, Illinois. Yeah. Actually just down the road from Washington, Illinois. Right. Which is where my niece and nephew attend. Yeah. Hey, how'd you do on getting us a yoga soccer, soccer mom from inner city Detroit this week? Well, I think that our guest probably wears yoga pants when exercising. I can't say that for sure. Um, I'm thinking no. I'm thinking that, no. I <laughs> Hey, I'm 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 trying to come up with something. But other than that, um, I think I missed the bat. But we have an awesome guest who is involved in the automotive industry and lives um, in Detroit and has spent decades working in that industry. And so I have questions about that industry. But there's also some other good things that we can discuss. So if you all will, I guess no one can welcome because we're only audio today, but Eric Showalter. Hi, Eric. How are you? Good, Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, just Good so you morning. know, Eric, I have no vision of you in yoga pants, so that's not something you have to worry about erasing. Well, man, I got your phone number, so I can send you pictures. <laughs> no, you cannot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, too funny, too funny. Uh, so you can, you can t- use it to chase off the mice. Yeah, I got plenty of those. Yeah. I don't want to yeah. unemploy my cats, though. It would be probably a definitely unemploy your cats because it would be much better at chasing off the mice and about everything else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what exactly do you do uh, in the automotive business, Eric? Um, I have uh, been in the casting business, high-pressure die casting for automotive for since 1994. Um, I graduated from Bradley University and uh, worked in aerospace for a couple of years and then ended up in this in this uh, industry that makes uh, engine blocks and transmission cases and a lot of other things for automotive. And then I ended up doing structural parts. Mm. So all the things that you see, like at Tesla and things like that with these big structural parts, I make a number of those and have for years, um, shock towers and, and cross car beams, which is the structure under the instrument panel and things like that. And we make those in aluminum and magnesium. Do you know Elon? I do not know Elon, no. I know people that know Elon, and I have several people that have worked at Tesla um, that work for me right now. Mm-hmm. Hey, oh, cool. Uh, my initial thought um, beyond Elon was, are you having any <laughs> trouble getting uh, access to ingredients to make these components? 
Um, we are not in general. We, there is some shortage of, of um, some components and replacement parts and re- repair parts and things of that nature. Um, some things are slow mm-hmm. um, to get to us. I mean, we, we've, we've had to be creative in how we um, do some things like, uh, for example, filters for my water units, hard to get. They come out of Europe. Um, and, uh, I can't find them. Hmm. Um, so I found, I think I found a source, but, um, we are actually washing those, uh, in ultrasonic washers and we're using them right now. What, what does that mean you're washing them? Well, we have, uh, ultrasonic cleaners that use ultrasonic waves in a, in a water bath that can uh, basically shake all the dirt out of them. Really? Um, and so we clean them and reuse them. Yeah. Hmm. It might become a long-term process now that we've started doing it. It might save us a bunch of money. So there's always a silver lining somewhere. You know, that's one aspect of the whole COVID scandal. I'm not on the fence about that. The COVID scandal that uh, maybe we haven't talked about. And, and that is it's caused us to look at things in every walk of life that we were previously taking for granted. I mean, if you could reuse filters forever, that would be way cool, right? Yeah, it would be way cool. And, uh, you know, it, it was not something that we actually thought about all that much, but we had an ultrasonic cleaner for different purposes. And uh, when we ran out of the ability to get what we needed, we started thinking out of the box. And uh, I don't think it'll be forever. I will still need new ones, but we mm-hmm. may not need nearly as many new ones as, as we had, right? Right. So can you add so in your marketing has... increased sustainability? Absolutely. I mean, we're, you know, listen, our, our, uh, our raw materials are all, um, uh, lightweight materials. So we're part of the lightweighting revolution in automotive. Um, magnesium, I've been doing magnesium for 20 years now, magnesium castings. Um, and that, that is the lightest structural metal used in cars. Um, and we, um, in, in a past life and in, in a different company, we made the rear doors for, say, the Pacifica. Um, is a rear is a magnesium casting um, with the um, with a uh, crimped on aluminum outer shell, and so it's uh, it saves about 50% over a steel door um, on the rear of your minivan, and that allows it to be lighter weight uh, hinges, lighter weight uh, struts that hold it up. It, it generate it's less parts to assemble. So yeah, we're part of that lightweight revolution anyway. But yeah, absolutely, this will add to that sustainability. Are you the reason my cars, so my in, pickups in, don't last as long? Your pickups <laughs> probably last longer than you think, actually. Um, <laughs> if you compare them to the 70s, um, when you would trade a car at probably 50,000, 60,000 miles because you were afraid of what would happen, how long do you drive them today? Uh, I have one pickup with 420 miles, 420,000. I have one okay. pickup with 327. There you go, right? And... and that's the thing. I mean, cars have gotten incredibly more robust as far as uh, the life of them. Um, and uh, as we move to, I have a 2021 F-150, and it's an aluminum body, so it'll never rust, right? Um, bring it on out here to Nebraska and some salt roads. Let's find out. I do have to tell aluminum you this funny. Rust, no matter how much salt you put there. Yeah, well, we'll find out if it's really <laughs> aluminum. Um, so, Eric, i got to tell you this. I find it funny. Back in the day, I was spending a lot of time in Michigan, 
uh, with Michigan corn growers, and, and we were doing different projects. Even did a TV show for a while, Michigan Farm and Garden Show, with my co-host Jody Pollock. And I had this GMC pickup that I was so proud of. I bought it brand new. Mm-hmm. It had 280,000 miles on it. It was would have been about a 90 or 91. And so we had this meeting with Michigan corn growers and engineers within the GM uh, empire. And so obviously we were talking about ethanol at the time and, and things like that. And I was just waiting. I was waiting for this moment to tell them about my pickup. That I had 280,000 miles on it. I thought, man, they're going to want to use this as a testimonial or put me in a commercial or something, right? So right. I told these engineers this story, thinking they'd be all excited. And this one leans over to me in a group of about 12, and he says, we don't make them to do that. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, I just there shot my testimonial. obsolescence, right? <laughs> Uh, it was yeah, if they fun. all last 500 million miles, you know, we're yeah. out of business. Right, right exactly. And then <laughs> the other only, I don't want to pretend to know anything. In fact, I have a pickup that's been sitting in my driveway for seven days. i got to go around it because it gelled up, and I got the fuel filter out. These engineers need to get some farmer ingenuity going on here where they put stuff like filters and things. And I haven't been able to get the right filter back in, so it's still sitting there. That's the extent of my automobile, automobile knowledge. I'm not, that's not my forte. But my brother. Oh boy, you, you, you sound like my dad. My dad, um, when I graduated from engineering school, <laughs> we were, uh, we had a sh- shaft go bad in our, um, what was it? Uh, probably 6620 John Deere and, uh, combine. And, we were in the in the tank, and he had to cut a hole in it to get to this thing. And he looked at me, and he said, "Engineers should have to work on the things they design for four years before they're allowed." To I agree with your else. dad. You're here for your dad, Eric Showalter. <laughs> it is roll route. We need to take a break. Jenny Swaggart on a Thursday edition of We the People. We will be back with more after this. Right off the bat today, let's talk about Neogen and the opportunity to shine a light on your genetic future. We're talking about the genomics, the alleles that are present that will be passed on to the offspring of your seed stock. Well, the offspring from your seed stock. And in in particular, we're talking about beef cattle, pigs, chickens. You know that chickens use DNA fingerprints and Neogen more than any other species. That's why they continue to make genetic progress. Shine a light on your genetic future. Get details about your DNA fingerprint at Neogen.com. You can't afford to be without it. Welcome back to Roll Route. Trent Lewis alongside Jenny Swigert. Every Thursday, Eric Showalter. This Thursday, we'll see if he's back on another Thursday. With his dad's wisdom, <laughs> we absolutely will have him back. So, you know... We are trying to, you know, bring city dwellers into the conversation so that rural folks can meet them. And that was all great and everything until Eric and I, he contacted me because he had ulcerative colitis, which is white Crohn's disease, which is what I have. And then we got to talking and lo and behold, he grew up like, I don't know, 30 miles from here in central Illinois. So on a farm, I take it. On a farm, yes. So that's where his farming ingenuity is coming from. 
And that's actually pretty reassuring to me that we have someone in the automotive industry who can use input from his dad about things that engineers should know. Like we just ran into the whole uh, fuel filter issue with our F-250 and it literally was the biggest pain in the butt because you had to take the bed out to do it and you just can't have a truck down that long when you've got things to do. But it was a pretty big process to get that changed. Doesn't everybody have a car lift in their garage? Uh, yeah, no. Well, oh. my brother does, but he's an hour away. <laughs> well, fire up the tractor and pull it down there, and it'll be fine. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Eric, along those lines, and I think that's a perfect segue, is I need to get on top of this because my state of Nebraska is one of them trying to be in the lead of the whole right to repair is that something that you're involved in because i mean just changing an oil filter anymore is just impossible and it seems like it's all by design are we wrong it is not something that i um, am involved in but i'm aware of it and you know the right to repair and especially with all the electronics and and um, some of these things um, is a big issue now some of the developments have been really really good right i mean because they have uh serviceless bearings now that'll last a million miles right mm-hmm. where you know everything had a grease dirt on it when we were growing up right um you know so some of it's good and some of it's bad but i think um you know there's a lot of that that it's going to get really interesting over the next several decades right what kind of impact or I guess, involvement do you have into the machinery side of things in agriculture and construction equipment, or do you? For for me, um, very, very little. I worked in, uh, I worked at uh, DMI right out of college, which is now owned by Case New Holland, right, Um, for about a year. Um, And then I went into aerospace and worked on the 777 and the F-22, and then I ended up making castings, and and I have no input into um, like the equipment that goes into farm equipment or anything like that. But for my plant, I have a ton of um, equipment uh, that's hydraulic and electric and robots, and I have 80 plus robots in my factory, and I have a ton of influence into how that gets designed and how serviceable it is, and and how I want it set up. Uh, my what, brother, what is, I, oh, sorry, Jenny, I, did, I started down this path and then it got lost with my own oil filter. Um, my my brother actually, th- this is what he does. He lives in Burlington, Wisconsin, and he designs those robots that build your components. And so not many times, but several times across the country, I've been in these factories where these robots he's building I'm just perplexed at how we have found a way to automate so much of that automobile manufacturing business. Uh, it's amazing. I mean, what we do with automation, um, you know, I mean, each one of my cells has three robots on it. It still has a human at the end of it, a person, mm-hmm. um, you know, because there's a lot of things you can't automate. Um, and part of it is human judgment, right? Um, although some of that is getting pretty interesting with, with cameras and, you know, um, and, and be 
being able to pick out defects with cameras. Um, but, you know, it's part of just the nature of it. I mean, my dad and I used to talk about how, you know, farming went from, you know, what was it, 80% of people at the turn of the 1900s involved in farming either directly or indirectly to, mm-hmm. you know, to a very small percentage. Um, manufacturing is going down that same path where there was a huge amount of people in manufacturing. And, and basically as the, as the people don't want to work in manufacturing, um, we've had to automate. And that's what it is. Same and, and, for same for farming. It's it's the same same trajectory, right? And the thing that jumped out the most at me, Eric, was you, I, because I have no knowledge whatsoever of building a car. You think that you have a whatever brand you want to have, and they build a car, they put it together. You build a robot to build a car. No, Troy, he builds a robot to build one. And this is right what you do. He builds a robot to build one component. It's like he makes the ingredient to make the pizza. And there's just so many steps involved yeah. in making this this bearing, and then the bearing goes to part of this, and then the then the final assembly comes to here. It was just such a pizza pizza making process. Yeah, he doesn't even make the ingredient to make the pizza. I make the ingredient. He makes right. the he makes the grinder to make the sausage that I make to make in the car to make. That's the pizza. A, that's a perfect analogy. Yeah. So there's a lot of concern about bringing jobs back. To the U.S., if I'm understanding it correctly, really we haven't shipped jobs across the sea. We have used robots, and it sounds like maybe a little AR. And no, that's we've, where we shipped a lot of jobs overseas. <laughs> uh, Troy goes to Mexico a lot, Jenny. <laughs> that's well. Yeah, we... That's where, yeah. I've been working in and out of China and Mexico and Europe for over 20 years. Um, I watched China. When I went to China, they were building less than 3 million cars. And the last time I was there, they were building 27 million cars. Wow. There's a lot of components that come out of China. Um, and we have shipped a lot of labor-intensive jobs to China. Um, and to Asia in general. First it was Japan, then it was Taiwan, and then it was China, and now it's South Korea and Vietnam, Thailand. Um, and, but, you know, a lot of those have, have started to come back to Mexico. My dad always said that, you know, we could out China, China and Mexico, and we're doing that. Um, and um, to a large extent. And then there's just the fact that a lot of people don't want to work in a factory today. Um, it's a very different environment. The kids don't want to do that. We've also got, you know, regulations as far as safety and things that people can't do what they did in the 50s, 60s, and 70s in factories and have OSHA say, you know, that's okay. Um, so right. there's, a, there's a lot of different things to that argument, right? I've always been. By the way, they'll still let the Chinese do that. Um, The Chinese government will still let the Chinese do a lot of those things that our government won't let us do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) As much of a Trump fan as I was for for four years and continue to be, uh, the the one thing that I always took issue with him on is that he was wanting to bring the jobs back to the U.S., which is perfect in sound effect. But what you just said, I think, is huge. You have to have somebody show up at the plant to work to do the job. Yeah. Um, and, and don't get me wrong. There's a lot of great 
people in the world that want to do good things and they do work for us. And I have 500 people that work in the factory that I run today Mm -hmm. um, that all want to do a good job and come to work every day. Most of them, um, you know, and um, they do a great job. And, And I will tell you that I was part of the reshoring effort. And I brought a factory back um, from from China um, to Upper Michigan um, to build fog lamps um, for one of the OEMs. And in China, well, OEM. we had uh, 50 people. O- o- OEM, Eric. OEM. I, I don't yeah. know what an OEM yeah, is. They go on a they go on a major truck, uh, one of the big three trucks. I won't say which one. Oh, okay. Um, and it's all the fog lamps on that one of those trucks. And they were made in Asia. They were made in Guangdong in southern China, and now they're made in northern Michigan. Awesome. Uh, and we brought back, um, but we had 50 people doing it in China, and I I added six jobs in Michigan to do the same thing. Wow. Uh, we need to go China's to a break. OEM. We're, yeah, I don't oh, know what sorry. that stands for. Original equipment manufacturer. Oh, there we go. Yes. So one of the car companies. Yeah. So I was just trying to get the lingo. It'd be like me talking about EPDs in my bores. Yeah. We're halfway through. Great discussion. Thank you, Jenny Swigert, for bringing yet another wonderful non-yoga pants-wearing mom. We'll be back in the second half of Roll Route after this. Back on the genomic DNA fingerprint. That's what Lone Creek Cattle Company has done. Identified the Piedmontese cattle to have the myostatin gene. The bulls that you use from Lone Creek have two copies of the myostatin gene. That leads to tenderness in the beef. You, the consumer get to reap the rewards of tender beef. You, the producer, get paid for putting together this tender beef supply. Lone Creek has the system to make it happen. Certified Piedmontese should be in your future. I'm just saying. Call Marlon Will and find him at LoneCreekCattleCo.com. Welcome back. <laughs> Welcome back to Roll Route, Crat Loose. We were not talking about the topic during the break. We were off topic, Jenny Swigert. Uh, yes, we were breaking rules. Eric Showalter, our guest. I love this story that you you bring Traverse City or wherever you brought it back to, probably Midland. Close. Michigan. No, um, western side. Okay. Uh, that you brought a, a plant back. Is there a movement to do that or is that an anomaly? No, I think there's a movement to do that. I think the Trump tariffs, um, you know, certainly hurt a lot of companies that were importing, and I was part of that uh, at the time. Um, and we were getting hit by 25% tariffs, so I moved everything out of China to um, to Taiwan, to a factory in Taiwan, and back to Michigan. And mm-hmm. our plan was to make a lot more parts, in, a lot more assemblies in Michigan. Um, and that's what they're doing today. How would you how would you assess the overall health of the automobile industry today? Oh boy, uh, that's a tough one. Um, you know, we went through a five year period where we sold more than seventeen million cars, um, and that ended uh, last year. Um, so we had a five year stretch where we sold more than seventeen million cars. There's only two other years that we sold more than 17 million cars on record, and that's 1999 and 2000. Um, So we are still very close to the peak of people buying cars. Um, And, um, you know, I don't know whether we got room to go up, but we certainly got room to go down. 
um, and cars are lasting longer and they're more expensive um, because of all the technology that is put into them that is required by our government. I mean, with backup cameras, think of backup cameras. Every car has got to have one now, right? Um, so that's one of the reasons why cars are going up uh, in price. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people are buying cars on longer leases and things of that nature, and that's, you know, that, that subprime part of the automotive market is the one that will go south fast first. So have no idea where we're at in that cycle, but we've been close to the top of it for a long time. So I have two pickups with more than 300,000, one with 400,000 miles on them because I refuse to buy a pickup that's worth more than my house. So you're not driving a King Ranch is what I'm no, here. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm driving I'm driving old pickups because $70,000 is a lot of money for a pickup, Eric. Yes, absolutely. So I have an F-150 uh, Lariat four-wheel drive, 2021, mm-hmm. 60, was $64,000, right? right. Now, I didn't pay $64,000 because I'm in the automotive industry, but that's another story. Oh, wait a minute. Wait, um, whoa, whoa, that's maybe a story we should pursue. I'm your cousin, right? Uh, Friends and family. If you got a cousin, you can get a break. Oh, goodness. So um, I always say Detroit has no idea what cars cost because nobody pays sticker or anywhere close to sticker for a car in Detroit. Everybody's got a cousin that that works at one of the big three, and uh, they get a discount. How much of a discount? Oh, oh, Jenny, you can back up in just a second. I wonder how much my discount is going to be as a cousin. Depends. It depends on how 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 high up in one of the companies your cousin is. It's all about who you there know. There are some it? that you, you can get a really really good discount. Let's just put it that way. Okay, Jenny, you're going to back up. <laughs> you got a camera on your back up there. <laughs> I am actually thrilled to hear mandated. that that is mandated now because. My husband will not allow us to purchase vehicles with high technology because they break down so much, in his opinion. And, like, I don't Um, even have automatic doors on my minivan, which drives me insane because (laughs) most kids that get in don't know what the heck to do. Jenny, They don't know how to manually shut uh, a minivan door. He is absolutely right. I have two pickups. I can't even open the back right door because the electronics fail. He's spot on. (laughs) Shush! You're not helping me. Pretty, I'm feeling pretty sorry for you for that four hundred thousand dollars, four hundred thousand mile car. You know, yeah, well, wait till I call you back, Eric, and it's over a million because we're going there. <laughs> My dad had one that went four hundred fifty thousand. Um, it had three speedometers in it, so we're just guessing, but it's pretty close to that. Um, and uh, it was a, a one of the original Ford diesels, an '83 Ford diesel. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, high technology, the technology in the cars, the electronics are what, what do break when they break these days. Um, but I will tell you, they're pretty robust and, and, uh, they, they don't break that often. But your, your husband sounds like my grandfather. When I bought a 10 speed bicycle, he looked at me, he goes, 10 more gear or nine more gears to break. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm on that page. I do, I do not want you to mandate that. I, I did not know that new vehicles were mandated to have a backup camera. That's ridiculous. 
mandated, absolutely mandated to have backup cameras. A lot of the things are mandated. Um, you know, there's a, you know, seat, but you know, some of them, some of them are good. Seat belts were mandated at one point. Right. Um, so sure. the backup cameras are now part of the, the, every car has to have one. Um, every new car that's sold has to have one and it has to have certain, you know, specifications. I, I see it. I see a time when, uh, you know, driver assistance is, you know, lane keep and, and things like that are, are, are mandated as well. Mm-hmm. I do see a problem with it. I'm going to totally bust my mother out here because her car has all the bells and the whistles, but her pickup truck does not. And she has been known to become so reliant on that backup camera that she doesn't pay attention to where she's backing up with the truck. So, so do we want to get into personal responsibility here or, I mean, because that's what we're mandating away, right? I mean, yeah, I think it it's is. all good, but but now you you have a backup camera and you have backup sensors and and now people get in their cars and just slam in reverse and just back up and the car is supposed to tell you and if they hit something they're like, "Well, my car failed." Right? No, you failed. That's a great <laughs> conversation. Because well, that I mean, right there explains general, COVID. Right? Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, well, it wasn't. I, yeah. I mean, COVID I, isn't. I agree, a hundred percent, Jenny. And, and it's it's a precursor in my mind to going forward. Well, I that's think, a concern. I mean, we need to sure. change. No, I mean, going forward, and the day is coming where there will be radar telling you when to turn, what to do, and you're going to completely lose personal responsibility in driving forward. Well, and I think that's why, be... like, uh, automated driving that people talk right. about, I, yeah. I, I don't see that coming as quickly as, you know, autonomous cars. I don't see it coming as quickly as others because um, of liability lawyers. Mm-hmm. And the auto companies are, the auto companies, rightly so, are going to really fight um, being liable for someone not paying attention when they're driving. Is it the companies or is it the attorneys? Well, the companies are going to, our companies are not going to want to step into the person's shoes if you hit something with your car, you know, and it's on a, it's an autonomous car. Who's at fault? Is it the person that was driving the car? Is it the car company? Is it the person that wrote the software that, that said, uh, don't hit, don't hit the little kid, hit grandma instead, right? Um, because the, the, the software is going to have to make that decision. Well, you make, that de- you make that decision every day. If there's a deer run, runs across you, you, in a split second, make the decision, am I going to hit the deer or am I going to hit the ditch? That's right. And that's what the, an autonomous vehicle, now you're asking the software mm-hmm. to make that decision. And so then it, then it steps back. you got to think about it. Everybody thinks, well, the software made the decision. No, a human behind the software programmed that software to make that decision. So who's liable in that chain? Wow, that's interesting. So here's a very, very relevant situation. So my son purchased a new car here in the last six months, and it is. It will break for you on its own. Yeah. It'll do all, like, almost all of that on its own. Thankfully, he has that, or he did have that um, disabled. But he had a, a deer, you know, because Tazewell County have, 
has lots of deer. So this deer ran into the side of his car, but he was not using the autonomous, you know, braking or whatever. Is it his fault? Is he going to be charged at fault? Because he was charged, and I know this isn't your, I know insurance isn't your area, but there was another situation where he, it was totally weather related and he was charged at fault because he didn't break 10 feet sooner. Earlier, yeah. 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 Those decisions will all be made in McLean County, Illinois. Jenny, not Madison, Mason County, Illinois. <laughs> yeah, and, and just for everybody, the deer are much larger in Tazewell County. All the hunters should go up to Tazewell County and Thank hunt deer. you. <laughs> yeah. So this is a this is a private joke because mm-hmm. No, I think um, I got it. We, yeah. You're keep so keeping them listeners. away from my cousin's deer, my brother my nephew niece's deer in Adams County. That's what you're doing. I see your logic. So, uh, Adam, Eric Adams County, all the all the good deer in Pike County, I heard. Yeah, the ones that we chased out of Adams County. <laughs> There's still some really awesome ones in Adams County, and I still hold the record in our family. Hmm. For the biggest. Is that right? I think I, I have. I think I lost the record. I held the record for a long time, but I think my cousin has outdone me now. So, Jenny, are you being braggadocious about the points or the pounds? Both, actually. Um, but, yeah, it scored higher. My oldest son tried to knock me out last year. No, two years ago. But That just, that just sounds funny. didn't score as high as mine. Yeah. Roll route. We've but got one segment I- left. For everything we've not explored in an automobile, we'll try to cover in the last segment after this. I've encouraged you to watch the stand at Paxton County, and it's because I'm quite proud to be a part of this endeavor. It's something that was produced by Hollywood that shows a side that's happening in a rural America that's never been shown before that I'm aware of. The challenges that people have with owning animals and how county and local officials can conspire against you. We need to stand up. We need to control this country at the local level. And the stand at Paxton County, which you can watch on Netflix, brings it all home, up close and personal. Somebody last night posted on Facebook, without knowing that I was involved with it at all, how much it was a a window into what's happening in our country today. That's really what it is. The Dossinger family of Stark County, North Dakota, they were on the front lines of experiencing what many people, far too many families, have experienced in terms of corruption. The Stand at Paxton County on Netflix. Welcome back to Roll Route. Trent Lewis, Eric Showalter joining us from the Mitten. Right in the palm of the Mitten is what he calls home. You almost... Your O's are almost bleeding over in Ontario. I don't know if you know that or not. My I can, what? I can pick out somebody from Ontario by how they pronounce O in a sentence. And your O's are bleed in sentences are bleeding more towards Ontario than Illinois. I'm just telling you. So I'm a chameleon. See, I... um, I'm a I'm a linguistic chameleon, and I've mm-hmm. lived in Iowa, Wisconsin. Um, Michigan and back in Illinois and, and, 
and I've worked, I actually ran a company in Canada for seven years. Oh, so, um, see? Yeah, like it. <laughs> I knew it. Yes. So I know processes and uh, maintenance <laughs> and um, all of those. You know, I, I know how to get out of something. Yeah, see, I, I could, I, your, your O still bleeds a little bit of Ontario. That's why I found it interesting. But my wife will tell me when I, when I pick up the phone, she's like, are you talking to your mom or Randy? Because I'll drop oh, right sure. into a southern accent, right? Oh, sure. And, yeah. Because we're, Mason County's got a very southern accent. Um, you know, a lot of the folks there came up through the Ohio River Valley from Kentucky and Virginia. So, yeah, it's got a pretty southern accent. Yeah. So I have a funny story, but I don't know if I want to use time for that. But okay, while you're deciding, I'll ask Eric one more question. Did you do business with Volkswagen? I do do business with Volkswagen. How has that lawsuit impacted the automobile industry? Uh, you mean the which one? The diesel? Yes. Scandal? Yeah. Um, well, I think it, it, it it's affected the auto industry in a pretty big way. Diesels were really gaining some ground mm-hmm. um, in automobiles, and that all that ground has been lost, I believe. I mean, you don't see the the Audis, the diesel Audis and VWs are you know not as prevalent. Even the diesel, you know, it stopped the the Chrysler diesel trucks for a long time, right? The eco diesel in the trucks there. Um, so I think that it took the edge off of diesels. Because there was momentum in diesel vehicles in every way, shape, or form, and now yeah, it's completely dead. 100%. Diesel is 30 cents higher. California is trying to outlaw diesel across the board. It just seems to me like it all comes back to this one lawsuit that's having ramifications around the world. It is coming back to that, and um, I'd be—I'll be honest with you. You know, there these EPA ratings and the tests and how they do all that stuff. There are specific cycles um, that they run in these tests to, to to determine how many miles per gallon and what the emissions are and things of mm-hmm. that nature. My understanding of that is they just forgot to disable what what they tested. Right. And so the car would, uh, you know, would uh, run in the test mode, which it, it's an interesting story. And I don't know all the details of it, but it certainly took the edge off of diesels um, to a large extent. I mean, you used to be able to get a diesel in a Grand Cherokee, and it was a great car, fantastic yeah. car. Now you can't get that anymore. Well, obviously my question is geared around um – whether that was based on fact or what the perception was of diesels. And I'm parlaying that with what people are trying to create a negative perception about meat consumption. And I just wanted to draw that parallel before we finished up with our automobile discussion, because I think there are some dangerous parallels there for human consumption. Well, I think there are. And I think there's a, you know, this whole follow the science thing. People aren't really interested in the science. They're interested in the, in what they want to hear, you know, about the science. And if you mm-hmm. dig into the science, it's different, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. As an engineer, I'm science, interested in the science. Yeah. And the science isn't so. always correct. I'm reading Sacred Cow, and yeah. it's very interesting to hear, okay, this study occurred, but 
this particular factor was not taken into consideration. So looking at different cultures or different countries who maybe eat, they don't have access to all of the highly processed food, which I would really like to know exactly what falls in that category, but that's another discussion. Mm -hmm. But they don't have the highly processed foods, so really it's not comparing apples to oranges in these studies. And I I guess I knew that, but I didn't really realize it. There's a lot of studies out there that have that have blind spots in them, and you know, there's a lot of people that are, and and people are generally, um, you know, have confirmation bias anyway, and they want to see stuff that that confirms what they've been thinking instead of really looking at the science and saying that. Um, so I think we got to be really careful with that. You know, if you look at the food pyramid, you know, when the food pyramid came in, and you know. Uh, fat was bad and, and, and carbs are good, you know, and what has happened to the American public um, from that mm-hmm. point forward, right? Chronic disease skyrocketing, that's what's happened. Well, obesity and, yeah. you know, overeating and the wrong kind of calories, and, and that's starting to be corrected now to some extent, but that was all driven by the science, right? Mm, no. It was driven by what they no. It's driven by what you just said earlier. It was driven by well, the science they wanted quotes, to find to get an outcome. Yeah, I was using air quotes. I guess air quotes don't translate, right? No, see, so that's where we got to see you, right? Yeah. But interesting yeah. to note, the actual food recommendations from the USDA started in 1890 because mm-hmm. there was a concern that farmers working in the fields were not consuming enough calories to maintain their uh, toll in the field. Yeah. How about uh, that turn of events? It? I mean, yeah, well, I mean, listen, uh, you know, my dad, my, my mom and dad went to one-room schoolhouses, were born uh, in the Depression, um, and, you know, that's a totally different, uh, you know, my grandparents lived through the Depression, and, you know, their their idea of of, of enough was is different than our idea of enough right right yes yeah so my I, I, I found cleaning out my grandmother's house i found ration stamps um from world war ii really I I posted them online yeah oh i, I got love three books of ration stamps <clears throat> yeah yeah uh before we run out so, of time eric just congratulations on being a cancer survivor yeah thank you That's absolutely <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, through my ulcerative colitis, you know, that those, those, uh, um, commercials you see that's, uh, that, that like for Humira and things like that, which is miracle drugs, by the way. But at the end, they say yes. some rare cancers and, and, and lymphomas have occurred. I'm one of those. Hmm. Uh, my cancer was one out of 300, or sorry, one out of 136 uh, cases of what I had. I had a solid tumor lymphoma at uh, 48 years old. Um, and had six rounds of chemo and uh, am cancer-free today. That's outstanding. And symptom-free from the ulcerative colitis. Um, uh, yeah, actually, because, my, my doctor as I've told learned, me, uh, yeah, yeah, my doctor told me that of, the chemo may reset my immune system, and it did. Right. In a right. good way? Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm symptom free. Um, I'm symptom free from ulcerative colitis. It is in complete remission. My immune system seems to, because uh, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's is an autoimmune disorder, mm-hmm. and it, uh, you know, so it's your own immune system fighting its your body, and um, right. so it seems to have reset my immune system. Have you experienced I, COVID? I have not experienced COVID. I know a boatload of people that have experienced mm-hmm. COVID. Um, and in our plants, we have people out all the time for COVID. We do lots of things to try to prevent spread and things like that. But with 500 people, it's um, right now, I think I have 10 out. I think we're close to herd immunity in my plant, frankly. Well, that's, we needed to get there quicker is the moral of the story. Yeah. Do well, you I mean, think that's herd a crisis? Is a real thing, right? Yeah, it is. It's the only answer to deal with a virus. The body is comprised of 380 trillion viruses, and until you get it, get exposed to it and develop immunity, you're going to have an issue. And again, coming back to the science, that's how vaccines work. Right. You know, they, they, they give you herd immunity. Right? They, they trigger the immune response in people's bodies or animals' bodies. Mm-hmm that make them immune to that so they can't get it and translate it on to other people. That's how vaccines work. That's how the uh, original vaccine, that's how vaccines are working textbook-wise. I'm not seeing that with this vaccine, but that's a different issue. Yeah, I don't know. I've been following it for a long time. Some of them I think so, and some of them I think not, right? Yeah. Yeah. It just seems like the vaccine has already, it should have been here six months ago. Nature has already run its course in certain yeah, areas. I mean, this is a this is a really tricky virus, and coronaviruses, you know, in particular. And I've seen multiple ones come out of China, and this is the only one that's really escaped from China. I saw six in China while I, while I've been going. I, I went through SARS when they used to take my temperature by sticking a temperature gun on my head. Take, I went through that in the early 2000s. I went through bird flu. I went through mirrors. Um, you know, and uh, N1H1 and, and all these different coronaviruses. And they're all coronaviruses, just like our flu is a coronavirus and, or, or mm-hmm. the common cold is a coronavirus. And we don't have a vaccine for that. I mean, we've got to guess which variant is going to come because that's, what, vac- uh, that's what, what viruses do. They mutate. It's hard. Mm-hmm. We're going to continue to have viruses. I hope that you both have seen... Fauci's ridiculous statement again this week saying that if you have taken the vi- the vaccine, you probably won't be able to do indoor dining, go to movie theaters, or be human anymore. You know, what? listen, I've been I... do- doing outdoor- indoor dining and, and going places and, and wherever I can get out. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to live your life, right? And, yeah. and, and it's not going to make it any better if we all stay in our basements because we will never achieve herd immunity. And we will all live in our basements for the rest of our lives. And frankly, my my 85 year old mother, I tried to get her to stay home, and she's like, "Listen, I've seen where I've seen scarlet fever, I've seen rubella. You know, if this one's going to get me, it's going to get me. You know where the will's at." Yeah. Right. Eric, <laughs> it's clear why you and I left the land of Lincoln. We don't know what's wrong with Jenny. She just keeps hanging around thinking she's going to make it better. We have successfully journeyed down the road connecting rural and urban America. All three of us remind you that all roads do lead to a rural route. The future of food production is not selling virtues. It's selling efficient food products. 
That's what farmers do. Convert natural resources into the essentials of life efficiently and make it better every year with technology that in Neogen, DNA fingerprinting, and the myostatin gene and the tenderness of certified Piedmontese. That's the future of agriculture, folks. Jump aboard.